Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This is my favorite story of the week just for how odd it is. A man is suing a Scottsdale cryonics company for $1 million and the return of his dad's frozen head. Kurt Pilgrim's father paid a company called Alcor Life Extension Foundation to preserve his body at sub-zero temperatures in the hopes that future technology might be able to restore his life. It's a method called cryonics. But Kurt thought that his father's full body was going to be preserved, not just the head. He was surprised when the company sent back the ashes of his father's body. Carl Puckett, reporter for the Great Falls Tribune, joins us for Pilgrim's fight to get all of his father's remains back. Lawrence Pilgrim grew up in the 20s and 30s and really in the boondocks of rural Montana on a farm and ranch where they had some beef cattle and, and had wheat and really a rural life. But he was a really bright, bright kid. He just wasn't your typical Montana kid, I guess is what I would say. And he was very interested in science and he was very interested in life and death. And he even recalls in a autobiography that he wrote for his family how he tagged along as a young kid to the hospital visiting sick relatives and he was wondering why are they sick he went to funerals and he, he was asking why did they die so anyway the farm really couldn't hold him and he he went on to higher education and went on to become a biochemist and had a pretty distinguished career in medical research and in teaching yeah he really became uh, almost an expert in aging at one point, he was a delegate for the United States to the International Congress on Aging in Vienna, Austria. I mean, he took his education and all his research and kind of constantly devoted himself to this idea of life and death and, and studying disease and things like that. And it led him to this notion of cryonics. He wanted to preserve himself in uh, you know frozen temperatures so that in the future, if the technology changes and they could revive him somehow... That's what he wanted to do. So he engaged in this contract with this cryonics company, Alcor Life Extension Foundation. How did that work out? In the 90s, when he was in his 60s, he signs an agreement with Alcor Life Extension Agency, which is based in Scottsdale, Arizona. In the deal is he signs over a life insurance policy, which is pretty typical in these arrangements. You pay for the preservation of your body with, with proceeds from life insurance. But anyway, they're going to preserve his body forever until the technology comes along that can revive him or reanimate him or restore him. That's kind of the idea. They're at Alcor. They have 170 people right now, 122 men, 42 women who have been cryopreserved. And according to them, they have about 1,200 members who have made arrangements for this in the future. They also have the baseball player Ted Williams there. They say that he might be frozen in different parts or something. How does this work? How do they actually store the bodies? They use these things that are nicknamed Bigfoots. They are basically storing them in a, storing them at uber cold temperatures and liquid nitrogen, and they're placed in these tanks. And they're not actually, one thing Alcor points out is, is a myth, they're not actually frozen per se, because freezing ice can actually damage 
the body and doesn't preserve it as well. So they just describe it as they're preserving them at these very cold temperatures. And sometimes just the head is stored. Some people just choose to have the brain, which is considered really vital to any future restoration. Some people choose to have their full body preservation, which is what Lawrence asked for. And this is where things start getting a little sticky is Lawrence's son, his name is Kurt. He was under the impression that his father wanted his whole body preserved for the future. And what ended up happening was Alcor ended up removing his head and cremating the body, sending that back to Kurt, to his son, and just keeping the head, only preserving the head. And this is part of the contention is that Kurt feels that they mistreated his father's body, that they didn't really respect his wishes with being his whole body being preserved. And this is the meat of of the lawsuit right now. Yeah, kind of the whole rub is Lawrence is living in the Santa Barbara area and he dies at 90 suddenly as a cardiac event. We're not exactly sure what happened, but anyway, he collapses on a public sidewalk and he dies. And he's taken to a county morgue and he's kept at about 30 degrees and his family is notified, Kurt, and he has a, he has a brother too that are notified and they know what their father's wishes are for the full body preservation and they also know that there are some specific key steps that need to be taken with a cryonics patient immediately. And one is that you have to be cooled right away to a certain temperature, and there are other steps in the process as well. But he's in the morgue. They won't release him, and they say they try to reach Alcor, the cryonics people in Arizona, and they can't reach him. And they uh, Kurt is pretty upset because he says he got an answering machine. You know, he felt like he was calling a towing company. He was just really turned off by... You might say the customer service. He just was not happy with how it all works. So what ended up happening, Elcor does show up, but it's Monday. It's three days after Lawrence has died. And they take him to a local mortuary in California. They take his head off. They burn the body. They ship the ashes to Dutton, Montana, where Kurt lives, and they take the head back to Alcor headquarters in Arizona, and Kurt gets the ashes in the mail, and that didn't make him very happy. It took like a full five days after Lawrence had passed away for Alcor to get the body and then begin the procedures that they needed to do. They called it a neuro-separation when they removed the head. When time is of the essence with these things to help preserve the tissues and the cells and things like that, that for potential reaction animation later time was of the essence there so they decided upon themselves to remove the head as you said earlier a lot of times that's what the most important thing is you need to preserve the brain for anything else to happen kurt's contention is that the agreement his father signed specifically stated he wanted a full body preservation the head and the entire body and they cut his head off and then they burn the rest of his body and he's saying that that's just in violation that's a breach of contract now Elcor is saying that they had discretion it was the agreement gave them the discretion on you know how to preserve the body depending on you know the circumstances and the conditions and they're also saying 
that is, it's the responsibility of the family to notify them immediately and that that didn't happen in this case. That That's their position. This is expected to go to trial next year, but that would be pretty easy to determine if there was some legal documents that Lawrence might have signed over that said, I either want my full body or my head, or if Alcor maintains also, they retain the discretion to do whatever they feel is necessary at the point when they're handling the body. So, I mean, some of these things seem to be easily solved, I would imagine. There is a contract and there is a box where you check full body preservation or the head, but I guess there's a lot of details in the contract that are going to get hashed out in court and how that plays out. I'm not sure if it's that straightforward or not. So Lawrence agreed to pay for all of this with his life insurance policy, which was about $123,000. I think Alcor had already previously sued the family because they tried to block the distribution of that money. How much does this cost? How much does Alcor say their costs are for either a head or full body preservation? When Lawrence entered his agreement, it was around $100,000 and it's changed a little bit. Now, Alcor says that uh, it typically costs $80,000 for a so-called quote-unquote Nero or head preservation and up to $200,000 for the full body preservation. And Alcor also says that I guess one of the myths about cryonic preservation is that it's for the wealthy and they argue that it's not for the wealthy. In fact, people rely on these life insurance policies to pay for it. And Alcor says it also has costs. It's it's expensive and they say they haven't been paid what they have coming for the preservation of, of Lawrence Pilgrim. Carl Puckett, reporter for the Great Falls Tribune. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep, thanks, Oscar. This next one's a complicated story. There was a shooting at a California Costco involving an off-duty police officer and an intellectually disabled man, and it's sparking debate about proper use of force. Two different stories are emerging about what went down in a food tasting line at this Costco, but the off-duty cop discharged his weapon, and it resulted in the death of a man named Kenneth French. His parents were also shot and are still in the hospital. We spoke to Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, for this complicated story. Really, there's different narratives as to what actually occurred. That hasn't completely come out yet. And uh, officials are saying that video from Costco might actually shed some light on what really did occur between these two men. But what we know so far is there was some sort of altercation in line while they were waiting for samples. The officer was in front of the Frenches in line for a sample, and some sort of altercation ensued between the two. The officer's attorney is alleging that the officer was knocked to the ground and was knocked unconscious in this attack. And he was holding his one and a half year old son at the time, which is important. He felt that he was threatened and his son might have been threatened. He apparently fell to the ground with his son. And so when he came to the attorney alleges, you know, he was his quote was, you know, he was fighting for his life. He wanted to protect his son. And so he opened fire. Now, civil rights attorney Dale Gallipo, he is representing the French family and he's alleging that actually there was a pause in time from the initial attack or shove, whatever it may have been. The officer identified himself as Los Angeles Police Department. The father stepped in between the two men and that's when the firing began. So really, there's a lot of unknowns at this point. 
Do we know what the nature of the disability of Kenneth French was? I have seen in some reporting that they believe him to be schizophrenic and that he was taking medication and he either changed medication or was off his medication at the time, which might have altered his behavior. Family members have said that French had some sort of an intellectual disability, though they didn't go into great detail about what exactly that meant. The attorney for the family has said that he did suffer from some sort of disability and was on medication. His medication was changed and that may have caused him to become a little agitated that evening. This is all according to the attorney. But really, you know, exactly what he was suffering from isn't clear. A family has said that he has the capacity of a teenager. They described him as a gentle giant who was not prone to violence. What are the laws and rules surrounding off-duty police? It's very similar to private citizens that have firearm permits, and, and this is all in California. What are some of those rules that relate to this? Self-defense law is basically the same for off-duty police, just like private citizens that have firearm permits in California. They're allowed to fire their weapon in self-defense in the event of an imminent attack and if there's no ability to retreat from the situation. That's what experts have been telling us. The real question is really whether a reasonable person in the situation of a shooter would have believed they were under attack and threatened with death or serious bodily injury. Now, some experts have told me that if the officer was knocked unconscious, that could be enough to justify the use of force. And this is where the video will help to shed a lot of light on their the attorney for the family, Dale Gallipo, had said that he just really thinks that the officer was mad that he got pushed and was never really under any real threat. And they're also alleging that the family is just angry that if this was any other person, not an officer, they would already be arrested and being charged with murder of Kenneth French. And then he also, like I said, he shot the parents, too. They got caught I don't know if it was in the crossfire or I don't know, you know, we don't know these details, but Kenneth French's mother is still in critical condition. She was in a coma for some time. His father is awake now, but he's still recovering from his injuries as well. They've been described to me as very serious injuries. As of this morning, I believe uh, Kenneth French's mother was still in a coma. So she is in very serious condition. Wow. That video is going to be very instrumental in how this all gets decided. There's two ongoing investigations. This goes to like a police commission panel that is going to decide whether the use of force was warranted or not, right? That's correct. Yeah, the police commission, uh, which is a five-member commission, will ultimately have say over whether the use of force was justified, not in terms of the criminal investigation, but in terms of the administrative one that the LAPD is conducting. Yeah, it's definitely a story we're going to keep following. Hannah Fry, reporter for the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. The future of food delivery may be starting this summer, and Uber wants your next Big Mac to be delivered by drone. The food delivery business is expected to be $76 billion in 2022, and Uber is betting that drone deliveries will be a big part of that. We spoke to Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News, who was at the first test flight for this and tells us how it all works. It was very exciting. We were like in this parking lot and it was locked down. There was all this yellow fluorescent tape. There were guys in vests that looked like Secret Service and all <laughs> these like Uber, top secret Uber people and I was, was like this is so exciting and I'm not a big drone expert so I was like I'm seeing the future I'm right here seeing the future and it turned out that almost every day of the year San Diego is a beautiful sunny place it was actually a little bit rainy and windy and windy enough that the drone couldn't go on its projected path so instead 
with a little box of McDonald's attached to it. It went straight up in the air and then came straight back down. So it was like, womp, womp. (laughs) (laughs) So this is uh, the Uber Elevate project, and this is what they've been working on. It got tripped over by a strong breeze is what it was classified as. Um, (laughs) But but this is exactly what all the concerns are. If there's going to be drones flying around throughout various cities, how is it going to contend with weather? How is it going to contend with other drones? Is my food ever going to make it to my house? Just starting off right off the bat, they couldn't do it. But tell us about the big picture, the big plan, because they're going to work on this and it's going to happen regardless. What's the big plan for food delivery by drone? They put millions and millions and millions of dollars into it. And food delivery is something that they are, that's a bright spot. You know, it's been like a sort of tumultuous year for Uber, but their Uber Eats program brought in like $1.5 billion last year. So they are betting a lot of money on this. And when drones are working properly, I saw one that was basically off the shelf, a little bit customized, but they have, um, they're unveiling a customized one later this year that will be able to go 70 miles per hour, up to 70 miles per hour and be stronger. It would have the one, the one that they're going to unveil would have been able to withstand the winds that this one couldn't. And the reason they're testing in San Diego is because it's a good place for drone testing. It's general. The weather is nice. There's a big military presence, so there's a lot of supervision. There's also this University of San Diego is doing a lot of testing on drones, so there's a lot of smart people working on it. And so the city of San Diego was selected by the FAA to conduct testing And they, in turn, tapped Uber to work with them on these projects. So you've been hearing a lot about flying cars, but Uber has been working almost as hard on drone food delivery. The food delivery business is estimated to increase 12% a year to $76 billion in 2022. So this is something that they want to get on top of. Where are they on the regulatory part of it? I know Google has approval from the FAA already to have unmanned commercial deliveries. Amazon is doing the same. I don't know where they are at as far as they go. Where is Uber at? Uber says, and Uber is pretty careful about this stuff. Uber is not a company that overpromises. They think that they are a month or so away from FAA approval, and they have a couple FAA people on staff, former FAA employees, and they're working very closely with them to get this moving. So I actually would bet, if you wanted to make a bet with me, Oscar, I would bet that they would have approval in like the next month or two to start commercial testing. And how do they envision this whole thing will work? Because A drone is not going to take off from McDonald's and (laughs) stop right in front of your house or drop it off at your doorstep. That's not going to happen. It still seems a little cumbersome, the overall plan. Well, that was my naive dream that one day soon I would be able to stick my hand out of my apartment window and a pizza box would drop (laughs) into it. Exactly. That is not happening anytime soon. What they're going to do is uh, less dramatic. The drone is going to deliver food onto launch pads that they're going to figure out. They're going to use all their data to figure out where the best places to put them. And then a courier will be stationed, ready to pick it up and deliver the food. But one thing that Uber is planning to do, which I think is really cool, is put some QR codes on the top of participating Uber cars, and then the drone can land, can be programmed to land on that roof. And so that saves a step or two or at least a couple feet off the ground, right? But I think that's kind of like an action movie, like the drone landing on the roof (laughs) and the car is like speeding away. 
What do they say about cost? How much is a delivery by drone going to cost? They are saying that it's going to be consistent with what the regular delivery is, which in San Diego, where I saw the test, can go up to eight fifty, which is no small thing. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, always great to talk to you guys. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.